Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and today we're joined by Christopher Farrisey. Uh, Chris is the author of Welfare for the Wealthy, Parties, Social Spending, and Inequality in the United States, published in 2015 by Cambridge University Press. Chris, welcome. Hi, Stephen. Thank you for having me here. Um, lovely to have you. And, and Chris has actually been with New Books Network before, I should note. Um, and you talked with Heath Brown last January and in that interview offered an overview of the book. Uh, and I would first encourage people to go and listen to that interview. Um, but for people who haven't and for people who will not take my sage advice and go ahead and do that, um, I'm wondering, Chris, if you would start us off by just giving us um, a summary of the book and perhaps anything that you thought worth underlining and highlighting from that conversation, um, and then we'll pick up from there and dig a little deeper. Thanks. I'd be happy to. So the book takes on a common view that uh, when there's a change in political party power, like we're about to experience uh, from the switch uh, from an Obama presidency to a Trump presidency, that uh, there's a certain pattern of government spending and social spending that we can expect, mainly that when Democrats are in power, they like to increase social spending, expanding the size and scope of government, while when Republicans get elected, uh, they reverse that and cut government spending, cut social spending, and uh, practice uh, the idea of small government. Uh, So I, I challenge that idea um, arguing that there are political pressures and ideological pressures within each party for both parties to be expansionist, for both parties to spend when they're in power. And the difference isn't that one party spends and one party cuts. The difference is, especially when it comes to social welfare, uh, who receives the benefits and how and those differences have implications for changes to income inequality. Um, so, so, and and what are so characterize those differences then? So, so if we're looking at uh, a move into uh, unified Republican control of national government, what should we anticipate thinking about social welfare spending? Okay. So, the argument I make in the book about the Republican Party is that. The idea that the Republican Party can win national elections by simply promising to cut social spending isn't correct. Uh, And this is especially true when you take deep dives into studies of public opinion and partisanship. Republican voters uh, like government spending. Uh, There's a, a, a nice book out recently called Ideology in America, uh, by Chris Ellis and Jim Stimson that shows uh, a majority of people who identify as conservatives and a majority of people who identify as Republicans when asked about specific policy proposals actually favor uh, more government activism and more uh, more government spending. Mm-hmm. Now, the difference is in how they prefer those. They uh, usually prefer those through tax subsidies and grants versus direct government checks. So that's the type of government activism that you see on the Republican side, is that uh, there are pressures from their constituency, as you saw with some of the uh, the Trump voters, uh, for government assistance, but they prefer that government assistance um, as a tax break versus uh, something through the budgetary process. And this is now this is, of course, you know, tapping into um, what's now a fairly long line of scholarship, starting with uh, Chris Howard and Jacob Hacker and Suzanne Mettler. Um, and it's been called all sorts of different things, submerged state, hidden welfare state, et cetera. But this this notion that um, we actually do 
spend a comparable amount of money on social welfare programs as do other rich democracies. But we've got sort of decades worth of literature that says we have a more limited welfare state because we have not been counting these unusual expenditures through the tax code, right? The deductions for home mortgage, which um, sort of in any rational world we would understand as a housing subsidy, but historically hasn't been counted as housing spending in the same way that public housing or Section 8 housing uh, has been, um, I think in part because just not enough people had been hammering it and trying to bring attention to it. And, and arguably part of the rationale for your book is despite all of that previous scholarship, it's still not uh, sort of, of high on our thinking about social welfare spending. Um, I mean, I guess sort of it, it still leaves for me the question, it's it's why, and you you know, I think you trace out nicely this this very clear pattern that, right, everybody likes to spend more money. They spend it on different things and do it in different ways, and we should reasonably expect that uh, unified Republican control is going to uh, shift that spending toward upper-income Americans through the task tax code. Um, that's a very long way of saying, is that intentionally done to hide that spending so that they can maintain that ideological narrative of being small government folks? Or is there another sort of rationale at work for that? So uh, I think it's both. I, I think there are uh, Republicans who, based upon their philosophy and based upon their ideology, uh, believe that this is a better use of public policy to instead of uh, providing direct checks or direct services to uh, incentivize uh, private entities and businesses to provide these. But uh, an argument I make in the book is that it is hard also not to ignore uh, the political calculus that's going on here. Um, businesses are unpopular with the American public, large corporations. The wealthy are unpopular with uh, the vast majority of Americans. So in this book and also in another paper uh, I have out uh, after the book, I I theorize about, okay, if you're a Republican Party leader and wealthy voters and large corporations are core constituencies of your group, but they're widely unpopular with the American voter, how do you distribute benefits to these groups without drawing the ire uh, and backlash among the median voter. Um, and, you know, having benefits delivered through the tax code is one practical way uh, for uh, Republicans to solve that problem, that uh, they are able to kind of rhetorically focus the voters' attention on, oh, we're providing money for child care benefits, we're providing money for health care insurance. But by the design of the program, which gets lost in the media coverage and uh, lost on the voter, it really is a redistributive program that is you know, taking money from the big pot of federal revenues and uh, giving it to people up the income ladder. Mm-hmm. Um, so... And, and presumably then that, that, that Democrats sort of take the more visible approach because they've got uh, broader constituencies so that they're trying to communicate clearly that they are delivering benefits to them? Yeah. So, you know, one is that uh, the large direct programs such as Social Security and Medicare are uh, owned by the Democratic Party. And when I say owned by the Democratic Party, it means that when we ask voters which party they trust to protect these programs and expand these programs. Uh, A vast majority of voters over time have identified the Democratic Party um, as who they trust to protect these large popular programs. I mean, obviously it's related to the Democratic Party created these programs and also have been more vocal in wanting to expand these. Um, So that's part of it. Uh, and also, uh, Democrats are more likely to use uh, budgetary programs just because you can um, create federal regulations and federal rules that allow a more uh, egalitarian distribution of benefits where if you do things through the tax code, especially through deductions and exclusions, um, by design, people who uh, earn more income and have a higher rate 
are going to receive the majority of those benefits. Yeah. Um, so, and I want to sort of turn to some recent public statements by Paul Ryan about Medicare, which would seem to potentially push against the argument. But before we go there, I want to just get your thoughts on two sort of historical examples that seem to potentially cut against this argument. And the, uh, the first is welfare reform under Bill Clinton, a Democratic administration in the 1990s, which was, in fact, a rolling back of one of those more visible CAS distribution programs. Um, and simultaneously, uh, pushing money into the earned income tax credit, right? So you've got a Democrat pulling money out of those physical programs and putting it into that, that submerged welfare state. Uh, and the other is the expansion of uh, prescription drug benefits, Medicare Part D, under Republican administration, George W. Bush. So do those, do those cases uh, push against your overall argument? So uh, those are uh, cases that I, I highlight in the book as examples of it's really important to kind of focus on who the parties are trying to uh, give money to rather than get up, uh, get caught up too much in the mechanisms per se. Mm -hmm. So in, in the in the large theory, I kind of draw out. I talk about, uh, you know, Democrats wanting to um use public policy as a way to distribute benefits to uh, the working class and Republicans wanting to use government resources to help the wealthy. And then as a way to operationalize that, I talk about direct spending and, and tax expenditures just as a kind of, of convenience of measurement. But um, these programs in particular, uh, Clinton was able to um, – and he was trying to reform welfare as a way to deracialize providing money to um, the working poor. The idea was that if welfare became racialized, um, that if you added work requirements to welfare and in turn um, shifted it to the EITC, that it might change people's attitude about uh the deservingness of the people who were receiving um, government benefits under the guise of anti-poverty programs, that people would go from seeing them as lazy and going against the American work ethic to um, if they understood that welfare reform contained a bunch of work requirements, uh, it would change the popular perception and therefore um, allow future government spending through the budgetary code. Yeah. Now that that, that never happened. Uh, <laughs> it, it never happened. But um, the EITC is the largest anti-poverty program, as you know, yeah. um, after that the federal security. government has. Yes, yeah, after Social Security, um, and that has enjoyed bipartisan support. Uh, and in an, another set of studies that I'm doing now with the co-author, we're looking at public opinion on welfare versus the EITC. And one of our more interesting findings is that um, the EITC deracializes uh, welfare spending, meaning that people who score high on symbolic racism scores or who believe that whites have a better work ethic than blacks, will have low preferences for welfare spending, but then don't bring those racial attitudes to bear when they're asked to evaluate the EITC. Um, so, you know, our early analysis shows that there is some support for the idea that the EITC is a potential way for the government to continue to um, assuage poverty without um, risking any kind of racial backlash uh, about government spending. Keeping in mind, and of course, the, it uh, the Medicare Part D under the Republicans, and uh, there's a it does. Yeah, in fact, I was just at a, a conference uh, in D.C. Uh, a couple months ago where there was talk about uh, if Clinton would have won the presidency to reforming the EITC to help um, close the loophole for people um, who make from zero to $2,000, which were uh, not included in the current structure of the EITC, along with um, single uh, single parents and single, single workers. But uh, I don't know where 
that will sit in a, in a Trump presidency. Um, and, and you're right, obviously, as far as people who uh, are not earning an income, they don't uh, have access to these benefits. Um, and Sorry, uh, other Republicans. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so on the Republican side with Medicare uh, Part D, um, you know, although uh, they were able to reform a major uh, public program, it's public almost in name only, where uh, the delivery mechanisms have been changed to work with private providers. And Medicare Part D in particular um, was kind of a boondoggle to uh, to private insurance companies. Yeah. So um, although these are kind of complicating stories because our social welfare policy infrastructure is so complex, um, if we keep our eyes on the prize as far as which entities benefited uh, from the change, um, then the story remains the same. Yeah. Um, so, so before we do finally turn our attention to sort of contemporary uh, thinking through maybe of, of what we might expect from from uh, incoming administration in Congress. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, the implications of this or the connections of of, of your conclusions to uh, explaining uh, income inequality uh, and rising levels of income inequality. And perhaps also if you have sort of something to Maybe we can segue from there into talking about the relationship between what Thomas Piketty has to say um, about sort of the, the economic and political uh, what feedback relationship between uh, uh, politics and economics. Um, but for sort of what's the implication of your book for thinking about the current levels of income inequality? So uh, political science turned its attention to, to income inequality, uh, you know, just rather recently, just a, couple, you know, a decade or so ago. And there have been findings that there, uh, particularly I think of Nate Kelly's work and Larry Bartels, where there are partisan patterns um, where it seems as if democratic administrations lead to uh, either smaller increases in equality or decreases and Republican administrations lead to increases in income inequality. Although, the exact policy mechanisms uh, in a lot of this work was rather a black box that there were, you know, uh, anecdotal stories of policies passed under different administrations, but nothing systematic uh, brought to bear as far as, you know, what were causing these changes. And, and I think that, you know, one of the, um, one of the contributions of my book is to show that there are systematic differences in spending trade-offs that Democrats and Republicans make. So what I theorize and then am able to show empirically is that when Democrats increase power at the federal level, what they have done over the last 40 years is to increase the amount of um, direct social spending on things like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, food stamps, uh, TANF, mm -hmm. and they in part pay for those by limiting or capping or um, repealing tax uh, subsidies for social welfare programs that mainly benefit the rich. So um, in this spending trade-off, uh, you're increasing the amount of federal money that's flowing to the working poor, and you're offsetting that by uh, cutting the money available to uh, rich people uh, to receive social services and benefits. Um, so that is a both a story, and I'm able to have a, a ratio measure that shows that this spending trade-off relates to reduced income inequality. And conversely, on the Republican side, um, they prefer to uh, be active by adding or increasing tax subsidies for social welfare. And they in turn uh, pay for some of those increases through cuts to uh, discretionary social spending that is targeted at the poor. So that type of uh, spending change and policy trade-off, um, again, is uh, a causal mechanism that we can link to how uh, federal policy contributes to rising income inequality. Yeah. Um, 
And any sort of thoughts on on uh, the 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 work? I was going to say the, the 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 work that has gotten enormous attention, but it's gotten enormous attention among people like you and me who pay attention to these things. <laughs> uh, Thomas Piketty, who sort of the great big thick book last year that yes. uh, tried to synthesize all of this through almost all of Western history. The most surprising um, bestseller, right? Decade, right? Yeah. <laughs> and a lovely book, I'll say. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the, you know, a story that. Um, you know, scholars and public policy and political science really haven't uh, addressed yet, and I hope that it gets more attention, is the wealth gap, right? So there's been a lot of focus on income inequality and, uh, and the income gap. But the wealth gap, which would include not only income, but also assets, right, capital, people's access to capital, how government subsidizes certain groups, uh, access to capital um, has has yet to play uh, a big story in, in what we talk about as far as politics and its effect on uh, people's economic conditions. And, and, and this is where I think uh, his book, you know, paints a nice story and really kind of, uh, I think, leaves a charge for the profession to, to look more closely at uh, how federal policy and state policy and international policy allows certain families to build capital that is then can be handed down to the next generation um, and might lock in and exacerbate income inequality uh, across time. And, you know, not surprisingly, I would make a pitch for people to study more the tax code because uh, there's so much in the tax code that rewards families who already have capital. I mean, you know, uh, one thing I'll can give a preview of what we might expect in a Trump administration is that the Republican Party really uh, loves this idea of savings accounts. And uh, proposing savings accounts as a type of new innovative social welfare program. Now, the problem is, is that not every family has the same ability to save and not every family has uh, the same capacity to contribute to these savings accounts and therefore reap the tax benefits from them. Uh, And not only are there... uh, uh, obviously class differences, but there are race differences and uh, ethnic differences. You know, so I, I wrote a, a piece for the monkey cage um, a couple, I think three, three or four months ago about uh, racial discrimination in the tax code. And, you know, it's, it's hard um, not to look at the kind of pairing of policies throughout the United States history. You mentioned at the outset about housing policy, uh, not only, you know, the allowing of housing discrimination, but um, how the home mortgage interest deduction and the property tax um, uh, tax benefits, you know, really uh, disproportionately go to whites with large homes. Um, so not only are you not uh, providing assistance and actively, you know, in a sense, discriminating against uh, poor minority communities and being able to. Uh, own a home, which is America's largest source of capital building, but you are uh, rewarding, uh, you know, exponentially uh, wealthy whites. Um, So, you know, that uh, the United States housing policy, both, um, you know, through HUD and also through the tax code um, has contributed to the racial wealth gap and has uh, picked winners and losers for who is able to use their home uh, to build capital for their family and pass it on to the next generation. Um, this is Stephen Schipper, if you just tuned in, the host of the Public Policy Channel at New Books Network. And we are in the midst of part two of a conversation with Christopher Farisi about his book, uh, Welfare for the Wealthy, Parties, Social Spending and Inequality in the United States. Um, so why don't we at this point, uh, why don't we turn our attention to um, trying to make sense of what it is that we may be confronting in uh, a Trump administration with unified Republican control of the national government. I would imagine that you, like me, have been sort of starting to think through, um, in addition to the politics of this, the political, the policy implications of what we might be confronted. Again, sort of keeping our attention here on social welfare policy, uh, both in, in direct spending and through the tax code. Um what should we be expecting and what should we be looking 
for? How should we be thinking about what may be coming down the pike? Mm-hmm. So I think that, uh, unfortunately, uh, my book is going to be very timely in the next yeah. two to four years. Um, so as, as I mentioned just a couple of minutes ago, my, my argument for what Republicans do in power is to expand um, – tax deductions and exclusions uh, for their constituencies and then in part pay for it by gutting programs that are most vital to really economically vulnerable populations. And that is at the heart of uh, Paul Ryan's path to prosperity. And, you know, what I think will be interesting and for me is kind of a million dollar question about the policy implications is that Trump kind of has laid out an agenda. Um, His Appeal has been mainly to working class whites, and uh, some of Trump's agenda is in conflict, and Trump himself was in conflict during um, the campaign with Paul Ryan himself, but also, in a sense, Paul Ryan's agenda. So, um, you know, does um, a Trump agenda uh, win the day and Paul Ryan in Republican Congress has to um, – be, you know, subsumed into kind of a Trump agenda or does uh, Trump kind of turn over the keys to policy to Paul Ryan and members of Congress and serve as a rubber stamp to um, the Ryan agenda? Or is there some type of mix, some type of negotiation within the Republican Party um, that tries to, you know, both provide large tax cuts to uh, to businesses and wealthier Americans, but also um, do something uh, for some of the the white working class voters that showed out in droves uh, to help the the Trump um, help the Trump campaign uh, win on Tuesday, mm-hmm. so um, I, I don't know what the answer to that question is. I don't think Republicans do. It's it's I mean, something that you know will be interesting to to watch. But here are some things that you might see. So let's um, first talk about the promise to repeal and replace Obamacare. Yeah. And for for listeners who might not know, you know, I would kind of categorize Obamacare as having two parts. One was a a large expansion of Medicaid, uh, the federal program to provide health insurance to the poor, and also um, a series of tax credits that were aimed at small businesses um, who usually employ people in the service industry and um, were working class people and their employees. Uh, to have access to health insurance in some of these private markets. Um, so I, I think that what you will see is a, um, a gradual reduction in the Medicaid expansion. Uh, the Medicaid expansion helps some 60 million more Americans um, with access to health care. And I think that, you know, um, it'll be difficult to do that quickly and do that Um, first, but I think that, you know, gradually if Republicans, you know, maintain their level of power for the next four years, you'll see a gradual uh, reduction in the Medicaid expansion. And I think that the gradual reduction will, you know, affect tens of millions of Americans and their access to health care. And it might even be as a precursor to block granting uh, Medicaid as welfare was in the mid nineties, which again would, um, cause there to be discrepancies in who had access and uh, to the generosity of benefits of ag, um, in Medicaid uh, across states. Uh, and, you know, what we learned from uh, welfare reform and other programs in the past that have been block granted is that on average, the um, accessibility to these programs and the generosity goes down. Uh, and at, so. And sorry. And, and where and, that money is going shifts. I mean, under, uh, AFDC is insufficient as that program was, uh, uh, um, 70 plus percent up to 80% of all the money spent on AFDC actually was delivered to low income households as cash benefits under TANF. We're looking at numbers somewhere between 30 and 40% of every dollar we're spending is actually now going into those low income households and the rest of that money is going to, uh, often for profit service providers and contractors who are delivering services. So it's not quite the kind of, of, of sort of shift in policy arenas that you're pointing to, but we also do see a shift in not just sort of amounts of money, but, but sort of who's benefiting from that spending and, and how much we see it. 
Um, yeah, no, you know, uh, I think that's exactly right. In fact, one thing I argue uh, in the book is that um, that what you just described is a is a defining characteristic of many of these tax subsidies. Yeah. Uh, the largest tax subsidies for social welfare are through the employment based system. So these are subsidies that allow businesses to uh, replace money they would otherwise pay to workers with tax-free benefits, which is a benefit to the employer, to the owner. Um, and also it's a, it's a indirect benefit to the employee uh, who receives this subsidized uh, access to health care and pensions. But, you know, one thing important to point out, which is uh, there's a lot of attention given to the individual mandate and the, the tax credits, Healthcare and pensions through the employment-based system uh, before Obamacare, healthcare in particular, was voluntary, right? So because these employment-based benefits and their corresponding federal subsidies um, are voluntary, there was a pattern to which type of worker had access to these in the first place, which type were offered. And, you know, it it might not be surprising to listeners that the modal recipient of employment-based 401ks and health care plans before Obamacare was a white male um, who was wealthier in uh, white collar and worked in a large corporation. Folks like you and me. Yes, exactly. And, uh, you know, these these are the... Uh, the programs for 401ks and employment-based healthcare are the largest uh, tax subsidies for people in the tax code. Uh, they're they're humongous. Uh, the amount of, I mean, you know, you talked about at the beginning uh, all the great previous work, and you know, just to let um, your listeners know, we're talking about in total over a trillion dollars a year. We're talking about. Uh, comparatively, we spend the most on tax subsidies for private social welfare uh, versus any other country in the world and uh, twice as amount as the second most country, Germany. And our spending on private sector um, social services is by far and away the most in the world. And, you know, these these offering of social services and benefits through the private sector oftentimes give the most assistance to people who are in the least need. Right. And and what's so, you know, to me, astonishing about these is that if you could imagine a member of Congress walking onto the floor and offering a new health care program where the largest checks would be mailed <laughs> to the wealthiest people to help them with health care. Right. No one in their right mind would think that that program would ever uh, get out of committee. Right. Let alone be voted on. But um, we already have these types of programs built into our system and they've been there for decades. Um, this just sort of is a, we were talking about sort of, of, of books that folks should know if they don't. And also this conversation also brings to mind Ira Katz Nelson's uh, when affirmative action was white. Um, yeah. Sort of the, sort of the, 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 I think this is a particularly useful moment in American history to uh, draw attention to the fact that over the course of our history, we have in fact had um, an enormously generous welfare state that has distributed the bulk of its benefits to uh, wealthy white men uh, and a handful of other folks. Um, and arguably at the same time, it has used its more repressive face to limit the opportunities of people who don't fall into that category. And because of the way in which we structure those programs, I think that that basic fact of the structure of the state um, is, is, is not obvious to, to, I would argue, most people. Um, and again, I think this is sort of one of those moments when perhaps uh, your book and others like it by drawing attention to that that. Um, that radical inequality and discrimination built into the ways in which we distribute distribute benefits might, uh, I don't know, serve serve to do something. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you know, uh, uh, two points I'll, I'll raise is one um, again, kind of as a preview of the the public opinion work I'm doing with uh, Christopher Ellis on these types of benefits. People, when we're asking people 
um, their perceptions of which groups benefit the most from either uh, direct programs like Social Security and Medicare or tax subsidies like for health care insurance through your employer 401ks. And we asked them about uh, class groups and racial groups. Um, People identify um, that whites are the primary beneficiaries of tax subsidies for 401ks hmm. and um, health care insurance. And, you know, uh, the way that we deliver benefits feeds back into people's perceptions of the deservingness of these groups, right? So yeah. if, if, a, if the benefits are structured as a tax break, it is sending a signal to people, if they know nothing else about the program, that this is someone who works, and this is someone who has paid into the system. And those positive attributes are um, a legitimizing force for uh, the government giving benefits to the group, even if the benefits are an upside down subsidy where um, the wealthy get the most, you know, versus the public feedback loops of uh, of public programs, which people might um, think of those groups as being lazy or as, you know, taking from the system. So, you know, this division of how we give benefits and who benefits um, also, you know, colors people's perceptions of who the makers and takers are and who's deserving and who's undeserving. Um, So it has those effects as well. And uh, the second thing I like to say is that, there's a distinction I like to point out among the design of taxes, and this kind of goes into what we might see um, with a Trump presidency, mm-hmm. is that the second part of Obamacare were a condition of tax credits. Now, um, for, for listeners who aren't uh, steeped in the tax code, and, and God, I hope you're not, <laughs> um, I, I, it's, it's a lot to get through, right? So, But there are different designs, right? So you can have a tax deduction or a tax exclusion or a tax exemption or a tax credit. And, and while some listeners' eyes might be rolling over right now, I'll just say that a tax credit, um, and I have this uh, in another paper, are – favored by the Democratic Party. So uh, the Democratic Party uses a combination of both direct spending and tax subsidies, but they use a particular type of tax subsidy, and that's a credit. And Obamacare is full of tax credits. And this is a design that's more equitable. If you make it refundable, it not only excuses uh, people's uh, tax incidents, but gives them a refund on top of it. And uh, those will probably go away with the repeal and replace effort. And what Trump has talked about replacing it with, which, by the way, is even to the right of anything yep. that Paul Ryan or John McCain proposed, is a um, a tax deduction for health insurance costs. And tax deductions provide the most benefits to uh, the wealthiest people. So um, if that is part of the replacement of Obamacare, that's really, again, shifting, you know, which groups the federal government is giving support to for health care insurance. The government will be gutting its pipeline to helping uh, the working class gain access to health insurance and a health insurance tax deductible will uh, just give more money to people who are in the least financial need um, for, for their health insurance costs. Yeah. So, so thereby, in addition to whatever uh, sort of inhuman misery that wreaks will then continue to ramp up that inequality. Yes. Um, by simultaneously yeah. pushing more money uh, upstream and pulling money and access to uh, the tools that give one the ability to work and perhaps survive downstream. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and just one more thing here. Yeah. Uh, one area I'd like to kind of connect this to is that I've talked about specific tax breaks. This is not even um, addressing yet Trump's tax plan, yeah. which is a, a larger tax cut for the wealthy than the Bush tax cuts. Yeah of the early aughts. And, you know, again, what I argue in the book and what uh, Paul Ryan's path to prosperity plan um, argues for is that you're going to have these large tax cuts, which disproportionately benefit the rich, and they're going to have to be paid for somewhat. And the way they're paid for is, again, by not only uh, repealing and replacing Obamacare, but the the Ryan budget has really large cuts to food stamps and, um, and, and TANF 
um, and talks about even making Medicare um, a possible block grant program um, and, and social security privatization. And, and all of these changes would um, would reduce the support for vulnerable populations uh, as a way to balance somewhat, not, not balance the budget, but, you know, at least pay for somewhat these large tax cuts. So if we think about policy writ large, not just, you know, the budget in and of itself, but the budget and tax policy, yeah. you're, you're going to see humongous trade-offs that just really uh, put the government's role in exacerbating inequality into hyperdrive. But I mean, but a lot of the, 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 um, cuts and restructuring of social welfare programs that Ryan has been been articulating and pushing for. And, you know, it is an open question, the relationship with Paul Ryan is going to have with the Trump administration, in fact, whether he even retains his speakership. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if we assume for the moment that he's going to be driving, perhaps with Mike Pence, be driving uh, domestic policy, it seems reasonable to expect that he will do what he said he wants to do. But a lot of those, you know, cutting, you know, you can't get any money by cutting, you know, food stamps and welfare, fine, eliminate those programs, it's still not getting you anywhere. Repeal the Affordable Care Act. Um, you know, one of the things that the Affordable Care Act has done is extended the solvency of the Medicare Trust Fund uh, 15 years, I believe, 15 to 20 years, if I've got that number correct. So it has yeah. actually sort of saved money in the long run. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's a part of it, it seems to me, is that those, those sorts of cuts are done. Uh, the, the rhetorical argument is that we need to do that in order to balance the budget. But uh, every reasonable estimate that I have seen by, by folks who, who knew how to do some fairly complicated math uh, is that, you know, there is not enough money in those programs uh, to, to, to even partially offset. So we're going to see, you know, massive holes blown in, in budget deficits and massive increase in debt. Um, and, you know, sort of from a macroeconomic perspective, uh, the potentially ugly, ugly irony of that is that in the short term could actually produce what look like some positive macroeconomic effects, right? I mean, those are Keynesian stimuli, right? Mm-hmm. Even though they are inefficient ways to reallocate resources, Right. But if we are we're, you know, cutting taxes that much and and maybe some of the infrastructure spending happens or a massive increase in military spending happens, that may create the appearance that this is working and therefore legitimize some of the more draconian. I mean, it's sort of that's more politics than policy for us. But but do you worry about that kind of effect, making it that much easier to eviscerate those programs even more? Uh, I am. Uh, there could be, you know, we're possibly due for a recession, yeah. you know, three or four years out. Uh, and but if there are, you know, large stimulus programs like the infrastructure, like even tax cuts or defense spending, then that could uh, postpone that. Uh, and then you wouldn't see some of the uh, ill effects that are projected. Like uh, I have a colleague who um, is part-time at Syracuse and then also runs the tax policy center, Len Berman, who mm-hmm. the tax policy center projects that, you know, Trump's budget would reduce GDP uh, in their, in, in the intermediate term by three to four percentage points and blow a huge hole in the, in the deficit. Um, but again, those would be lagged effects. So yeah, th- there is a, there is a potential problem and that these, um, these programs might cause uh, kind of a sugar high of the economy that would happen before either the next midterms or before the next presidential election that could uh, present kind of an artificial um, artificial uh, view of growth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as as you know, sort of as people and scholars, I think, who are concerned with these kinds of inequities and this kinds of inequality. Um, and I think um, concerned, whatever else our concerns are with the potential Trump administration and unified Republican control, concerned about what this does to, to the poorest and most vulnerable Americans. Um, I mean, what, what do we tell other people who are concerned about things? What are the practical implications? What do we do? What do people need to know? Is there a way to turn this into education or action? I mean, what, what, what can we do other than bemoan the potential horrors that might be confronting some of the most vulnerable American populations? Well, so one would be uh, to 
realize that when if there's talk about tax reform, and you know, my concern is that some of these uh, larger policy movements that really might shift federal resources to the rich are going to be hidden under the guise of tax reform that you know is rhetorically sold as a way to make the tax code simpler and fairer. Um, when it, it might not do either of those um, is, to, it, it, you know, is it, for hopefully the both the media and average citizens to have learned from the Bush tax cuts that, um, you know, the Bush tax cuts did not lead to uh, robust growth. Uh, it did not lead to middle class and working class families um, having income gains. So, you know, to really question your local Congress member and, you know, really uh, pay attention to uh, any promises of tax reform, even though it might be a little difficult and complex to understand, um, the details are important in understanding what it means for, you know, your family and your pocketbooks um, really would make a difference uh, if local Congress members heard that, you know, people are not um, sanguine about these leading to uh, better prospects for average Americans, especially if it leads to cuts in programs that people uh, care about and want to protect. Yeah. Um, this is Stephen Pimper. I'm the host of the Public Policy Channel at New Books Network, and we have been talking with Christopher Farrisee, who's author of Welfare for the Wealthy, Party Social Spending and Inequality in the United States from Cambridge University Press. Um, so as we work our way toward wrapping up here, Chris, um, you've talked a little bit about the, the, the ongoing research that you're doing. I wonder if you would uh, first uh, say just a little bit more of that. What can we look for and what are you, what are you hoping to discover out of this new work? So uh, doing this book led me to think about how the public might consider tax subsidies and, and what role, if any, the average voter has in uh, the, the increase we've seen in tax subsidies for social welfare. So I, along with my co-author, Christopher Ellis, we have uh, implemented four national surveys and are currently writing a book uh, for the Russell Sage Foundation on how the American public um, views tax subsidies for social welfare versus their preferences for traditional programs like Social Security and Medicare. And um, a couple of our early findings is that um, – you know, part of the reason that politicians offer these is that they're popular. Um, when we conduct survey experiments where we randomize uh, people and half of the sample uh, receives questions about a social welfare program where they get a direct check and the other half receives the same wording. And the only thing that's changed is that the person receives the benefit through a tax subsidy. We find that on average, uh, more Americans prefer people to receive benefits through a tax subsidy. Uh, and, you know, our, our reasons why is that um, voters have been found to have ambivalence about government spending and government, right? They want government to provide support for things, but people have these anti-government attitudes. So a, a tax subsidy reduces the cognitive dissidence that people might have uh, because it is both financial support for popular things that they support, such as uh, paying for college or access to a pension plan or access to health care, but it does it in a way that doesn't trigger anti-government uh, sentiments. And um, in addition, you know, it doesn't pin people based upon their values of individual individualism versus egalitarianism. Tax subsidies for social welfare kind of plays into both camps. Mm. Um, tax subsidies for social welfare are not owned by one party or another. So it doesn't uh, initially kind of draw people into partisan tribal camps. Yeah. Um, maybe the same way that welfare food stamps might. Um so for, for all these reasons, um, we find uh, these programs to be more popular with the average voter. And in addition, um, and this kind of alludes to some of the work that you mentioned before, it helps people 
uh, we think, you know, who want to kind of sort people into deserving versus undeserving poor camps, um, that if they are presented with information that this is a benefit, but it's a benefit for, you know, people who work and people who paid into the system, then again, just, just the description of the program does a lot of the, the, the heavy cognitive lifting about helping people decide whether or not they want to give benefits to certain groups. Um, you know, and maybe I can kind of leave on a, on a potential, um, you know, positive note is that, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, again, so we find that, um, that, uh, the, these credits, uh, a tax credit again, which is, a you know, considered to be a good way to provide money to the working poor. But as you mentioned, it doesn't, you know, affect, uh, some segments of the of the poor population uh, doesn't trigger racial animosity. So, you know, in in a in an era of the rise of white identity politics and you know um, increased kind of racialization of politics in the United States, this is a potential way forward for people who want to use federal policy to reduce income inequality to try to address uh, some of uh, some level of poverty. Uh, that uh, tax credits are ways that um, don't polarize people and therefore are politically sustainable policy methods of uh, providing uh, federal money to vulnerable groups. So it's, I mean, it sounds like the, the implication of, of that work is suggesting that uh, Democrats should adopt Republican usage of the tax code for delivering social welfare benefits and abandon the notion of distributing them for more uh, traditional kind of direct service programs. Is that, is that stating that too strongly? Uh, no, I mean, in a sense, they already have, right? right. So, uh, you know, Clinton passed a number of uh, tax proposals for uh, college education. Obamacare, half of that yeah. were, uh, was done through the tax code. Uh, you know, uh, the Obama administration expanded the EATC, uh, they had a uh, uh, another tax credit uh, early on as part of the stimulus package. So um, Democrats already have been that. adopting these. Now, there's a limit to this. You know, one thing I might argue is that um, although tax credits at one time were a conservative idea that may have been adopted by Democrats, there's another conservative idea that relates to the negative income tax, which is, which is a universal basic income. And if there are continual economic trends of automation and globalization, and there really are decimations of certain industries, you know, I think, for example, of uh, people, you know, like the, like the truck driving industry, yeah. there, there might become more and more of a public appetite for something such as a universal basis. So if you would, if you would, you know, I, I could foresee something um, 10 years from now, or maybe even sooner, where uh, a politician gains leverage by offering some form of universal basic income in exchange for reducing or eliminating some programs that are controversial or inefficient. Hmm. Um, so that might be on uh, the political radar sooner than later. So, so theoretically possible that the political opportunities for universal basic income of some kind may in fact be higher in a Trump administration than they would be in a Clinton administration. Um, whether that's true or not, I'm going to hold on to that. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not sure if it'll happen in the Trump administration. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe a, maybe a post Trump administration. <laughs> um, all right, Chris, thank you so much for your time. I've been speaking with Chris Pharisees, the author of welfare for the wealthy party, social spending and inequality in the United States. Uh, and Christopher, I hope very much that, uh, once your new project is in book form that you'll touch base with us and we'll have you on. We'll be able to sort of pick up this conversation and dive in a little more deeply at what it is that you all have found. That sounds great. Uh, I've appreciated the chance to talk with you and your listeners, and uh, I look forward to talking with you in the future. Take care. <laughs>